Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. What the DEA has very cleverly done from its perspective post 9/11 is tied to the war on terror. So essentially now saying that our drug war is now it's a terror war. All these cartels are now funding and supporting and enriching terrorists. They're getting their money from drugs. These wars are joined together. And the rhetoric is the same thing. We're fighting a war on drugs. We're fighting a war on terror. Journalist and author Anthony Lowestein spent a long time writing this book. Pills, powder and smoke inside the bloody war on drugs. In this podcast, we're going to talk about his journey. And what a journey. He put himself on the line to do this. We talk about transit countries, which I don't think we've spoken enough about. And we also talk about consumer countries like the UK, the US, Australia. We also talk about the individuals that are caught up in the war on drugs. And there's some horrific and heartbreaking stories. So make sure you do listen to this one and take notes. You're listening to Stop and Search on Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAS in association with UK. Here we go. Thank you so much for joining us and we also need to thank the Queen Mary University for hosting us on this event. Thank you Jennifer Randall and all the staff for putting on a brilliant event with author and journalist Anthony Lowestein who wrote this incredible book that's beside me right now as I'm doing this voiceover called Pills, Powder and Smoke Inside the Bloody War on Drugs. There is so much to unpack. As I said, what is a transit country and why are they affected so badly by the consumer countries? Also, the people that are caught up in these war on drugs, what's going on? How can we best help them? Is there a case for ethical cocaine? Hmm. Yeah, there's some there's some interesting questions that come out of this one. So make sure you do listen, pay attention, because we will ask questions. So let's get straight into this episode. This is Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs. Make sure you buy this book as well, because I'm not just saying this. I know I have to, but it genuinely is incredible. There is so, so much in this. Stories, facts figures, details, it goes into the war on drugs like like I've never seen before. So this is Stop and Search. So don't forget that Anthony's book is at the back. It is, I can't say enough how incredible it is. I, I'm, I'm going to keep saying that because I've read countless books on drug policy now and I can honestly say that yours kept my attention. It was it was absolutely fantastic. And I'd imagine it took you a fair amount of time to write that. From start to finish, your journey, how long did it take? So the book took me around four years. I started doing it in, 
I mean, I've been thinking about the issue for a long time, but I guess 2015, the first place I went to was Guinea-Bissau, which I guess we'll talk about, a place in West Africa, a country, you know, a tiny former Portuguese colony in West Africa, but four years. So these sort of books take a long time because A, you're trying to raise the money, B, often these places take a lot of time to research. You often have security issues, so you want to plan a trip as much as you can before you get there. And I think there's also a sense that... Um, you want time to be able to think about what you've seen and to not, there was no particular urgency to get the book out. And I was also interested to see, of course, I started the book during the Obama administration, didn't expect like anybody that Trump was going to become president, how that would impact drug policy, which it has. Not actually as much, I think, as people think, but it obviously has had impact, mostly negatively, of course. So, yeah, it's about a four, four and a half year process. It takes a long time, which is not an unusual time for a journalism book of a global scope, but it took a while. And I think I am going to start talking about it chapter by chapter. So you, you start off in, in the book anyway. You just said that you st- actually in, in real life you started in Guinea-Bissau, but in the book you start with Honduras. Um, and I said to you before we started that um, it's interesting for me because we've talked about on the podcast a lot about consumer countries like UK, like US. We've done a lot on production companies, uh, countries like uh, Colombia, but we've never really done transit. And this is what Honduras is, and it's a transit country. So can you explain, first of all, what a transit country is? So transit country is a country that mostly does not grow the drug itself doesn't produce the plant, um, the coca plant, for example. And so Honduras, which obviously is a neighbor of the US, it's been the victim, I guess you'd say, for arguably 100 years of US imperial foreign policy, suffered deeply from decades of dictatorial rule supported by the US. It was a key country used by the US during the Reagan administration to fight neighboring countries. And pretty much since the 80s, the country has become a key base for drug cartels and narco traffickers and often the people that are um, working there apart from obviously Hondurans who are involved in the trade are South American drug cartels that are operating and using this as a a, um, transit country mostly cocaine so a sizable part of the cocaine going to the US is coming from mostly Colombia and Peru and at some point going via Honduras and into the US and the effect of that, as I talk about in the book in great detail, is a country that's essentially a failed state. I mean, it is a one of the most violent countries in the world. There's a reason why the so many of the refugees that are trying to get into Trump's America are coming from Honduras, because the and mostly often not being able to get in because of Trump's anti-refugee policies. But the effect of having a transit country because the demand for cocaine in the U.S. is so massive and growing every year that the effect of Honduras on in fact the fear effect on Honduras has been a really devastating reality for civilians there and I've really been to a country where so many people you speak to say I want to leave I want to get out of here um, not because I don't like Honduras but because I cannot live my life safely here and it is actually a really dangerous place and if, if you are an activist because you you make the point that and i'm consulting my notes here because i made so many notes on your book honestly I i'm think, happy to see that i think it's the most <laughs> amount of notes i've made and if you are an environmental activist which happens in honduras you are in real danger aren't you? this isn't just a, a game 
It's not. And one of the most infamous cases, which I start the book with, is a woman called Berta um, um, Caceres, who was killed in 2016. She was an environmental activist. She won some major environmental awards globally. And the effect of that was that she was killed for protesting a an infamous dam that was going to destroy a lot of Indigenous communities. And there was no direct connection to drugs. And yet, as I explained in the book, drugs are synonymous with a lot of the problems in Honduras and the country is run by a narco president and I have lots of quotes in there from activists who say that there's narco presidents and narco mayors and what that means practically are um, people in power who are paid by narcos as happens often in Mexico and elsewhere to do the bidding of the narcos so to allow transit of drugs to turn a blind eye to give uh, comfort or sanctuary to various people in the industry. And the effect of civilians is devastating, of course. I and mean, one of the things that was the most affecting in going around the country was people, which is not unique to Honduras, but particularly bad in Honduras, is this whole concept of a war tax. So war tax means that you want to start a business, you want to run any kind of industry there, whether it's running a local stall on the side of the road to being a bus driver to running a shop. And you will have come to your house or to your business one, two, three, four gangs saying you have to pay us a weekly tax and if you don't, we'll kill you. And that's just not just simply words. They will kill you and they do. The death rate in Honduras is one of the worst in the world outside traditional war zones. So it's not the level of Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq, but it's unbelievably high. And you meet people there and I was, I had the luxury to some extent, of course, I was likely to be able to leave, but I felt at times scared uh, traveling around there, I was with a local journalist who was my translator and fixer. We say a journalist has a fixer, someone who works with you to help you get around a place. And But there are a number of moments, some of which end up in the book and some didn't, where I didn't feel like I was about to be shot dead. But I certainly felt at times under threat that there's a complete impunity uh, of the government and authorities to kill uh, environmental activists kill journalists, not going after Western journalists particularly. And one of the frustrating things that I found about Honduras is so often in the US media, particularly the US media, Honduras is talked about. People are coming from Honduras to try to get into Trump's America. But so rarely is it talked about, well, what are they fleeing? And why are they fleeing it? And what exactly is causing that violence in the first place? Why are so many people using cocaine? Why so many people, and that's, I guess, a broader question, including here in the UK, whereas people in this room will know cocaine use has never been higher. It's off the chart, including in London, but all across the UK. And this is not a judgmental comment about people who use drugs, far from it, but it is to say that there is a deeply ugly supply chain about where these drugs are coming from while they remain illegal. And Honduras is a key place where that is happening. And I think a lot of Americans and others have no idea what's happening on in their on their doorstep. You make the point that there's around 36,000 gang members in Honduras. So when you mention the fact that people are essentially paying a, a tax just to, to survive and live, you say that taxi driver are exploited as a general part of the day-to-day -day yeah. fabric of the society. It is. And what's so devastating about Honduras is that everyone you speak to has literal to no faith in any person in authority assisting them, a local government minister, a minister, 
I mean, let alone the president, who won re-election a few years ago in a completely fraudulent election. It was supported by the Trump administration. Uh, the president's brother was recently found guilty in a uh, U.S. Uh, court for trying to import huge amounts of cocaine. Tony Hernandez is his name, trying to import huge amounts of cocaine from Honduras into the U.S. with his initials apparently stamped onto some of the um, uh, some of the drugs. I mean, these. In other words, there is a complete culture of not just the U.S. turning a blind eye; they're actively assisting in the government maintaining that. Uh, state of war, and it is really a war zone. It's not, as I said, a traditional war zone like one imagines in Afghanistan or Iraq or elsewhere, but it is a war zone of, of other sorts. And what the drug war contributes to that is a sense that um, a lot of people, and this is what frustrates me, a lot of people who are not just consuming drugs but talking about drugs and writing about drugs between the US press, and here too, disconnect completely about where they're coming from and how how they get to us and that's a real problem um but we'll get to the us in a minute because the us is is really crucial in honduras but just to kind of lay with a point a bit more on the corruption of the day-to-day living yes. again you estimate that around about 50 percent of the police are corrupt in some sort of way or complicit in what's going on how the hell does that affect the, the fabric of the society it means that if something happens to you, you don't call the cops. It means that if you... I went to neighbourhoods there in some of the big cities, which are really... Um, people often don't walk the streets when it gets dark. And I visited certain homes. I talk about this in the book. And people will say, uh, this is affecting men and women, but often more so women because then there's often the threat of rape, which doesn't as often happen to men. Certainly there anyway. And so women will say, no, we don't leave the house. So we really leave the house. And, you know, you drive past a, a bar and people will say, oh, two people were shot dead there a few days ago. There's a stadium down the road from where I was visiting. The police and gangs associated with the cops regularly assassinate people. And I mention that because the effect of what the drug war means, which is not on one level unique to Honduras, this is happening in Mexico and in various parts of Colombia increasingly as the Colombian peace deal is collapsing that was established um, four years ago. It is collapsing in many, many profound ways, not least because Colombia's um, export of coca and cocaine has never been high. It's the highest ever. And about 70% of the world's cocaine now comes from Colombia at least. And the rest is mostly Peru with a few other countries sprinkled in. But it was the impact of that kind of violence and that kind of normality of dysfunction is that people you speak to, locals, are so fearful for their lives that it makes utmost sense why you'd want to leave. And the demonization of those who are trying to mostly get into the US. I don't, can't imagine that many Hondurans coming here. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing it's obviously geographically much more likely to be the US. And very few Hondurans are getting into the US now. Very few, in fact, particularly since Trump came in. But to be clear, to finish on this point, and I talk about this in the book, it is a profound mistake, like on so many issues, to think that this problem suddenly started with Trump. Trump is in some ways not the problem here on virtually all issues. It's a mistake to think that removing Trump or replacing him with, and there are some president options who might be better than him, to be sure, of course, 
But I'm saying that it's a mistake to think that everything suddenly went bad when Trump became president or that Obama, frankly, was president when there was a coup in Honduras in 2009 and supported it 110%. The problems in Honduras existed before Obama, but they got a lot worse when he was president and Trump accelerated those trends. So let's not, on a range of issues, somehow imagine that all the good old Obama days, when it comes to these kinds of issues, Obama was generally almost just as bad. And in fact, there's something to be said that Trump is more brazen and honest about the fact that he supports thuggery. Obama kind of used lovely, pretty words, but the ultimate impact was exactly the same. And in fact, the violence in Honduras was maybe a tad more when he was president than now. Uh, Actually, let's do that then. Let's get into the US because it's, I think, about the uh, fourth or fifth chapter in the book, but it's the overriding theme to the whole thing in many ways. Uh, But just before we do, you mentioned about domestic violence and sexual assault. In Honduras, it's awful, isn't it? It's one of the worst countries in the world for sexual violence. And also there's just not the support, is there? I mean, they, they've outlawed abortion. Is it they've also, the contraception is is also yes. really difficult to come by. So again, this is giving you a setting of what Honduras is like and why it is uh, domestically vulnerable. So when you've got someone that is that kind of turbulent, it's had a lot of different governments and sort of changes within that and structure. The US has played quite a big part and the DEA as well. Would you say that they've almost, I think you kind of do hint at it in the book, that they've almost played a part within the kind of democracy or pseudo-democracy that goes with the country? Well, Honduras certainly is not a democracy. Uh, Honduras is a has the trappings or the illusion of elections and some kind of democratic system. But ultimately, for anyone who's been there or knows Honduras, it's a narco-state run by drug cartels, often with the um, support or or pleasant face of a Western-backed leader. And the issue of, you talked about um, domestic violence, about abortion. In fact, since there was a coup in 2009, supported by Obama, who was then president, Hillary Clinton, who was then Secretary of State, and after that, abortion was outlawed. Obviously, some women still access abortion, but it's incredibly dangerous to do so, as you can imagine. Um, I mean, this is really a a dystopian reality there where you cannot legally access abortion anywhere. Obviously, some doctors perform abortions, like in every country that would outlaw it, but it's very hard to access. Domestic violence is so high there, and the police mostly turn a blind eye to it. And again, some of these issues are not directly related to drugs. People say, well, what's the connection to drugs? Yes, it's not all about drug cartels, but the environment that is created by a nation that allows itself, and with pressure from outside, to be a key transit country for drugs, and obviously gang violence and gang warfare, allows other social dysfunction almost inevitably to occur. And that is about women's rights. I mean, I'd say women's rights are human rights. So just human rights in general, particularly women's access to contraception. And again, speaking to a number of activists there, women, uh, people who were fighting this system, people, you realise in some ways when you write about these issues and you visit these countries that we in the West, with some exceptions, have no idea no idea the kind of daily struggles that people have to deal with and fight if you simply oppose the system. And I say that as 
and I've often thought about this as a journalist myself, that to me, the best kind of journalism is using what is undeniably my own privilege. Yes, I'm speaking as a white male, but I mean just as a Western journalist in general, but both, to highlight issues where we have, in mostly in the West, no and willfully have no idea what's going on. In the US's case, down the road, basically where Honduras is. Honduras feels like a long way away from here. That's true. But as we'll get to, a lot of the cocaine coming uh, to the UK and Europe goes via West Africa, and there's huge carnage and dislocation going on because of that. Again, people don't think about that, and too often the media doesn't cover it. And I don't think it's because some grand media conspiracy. I just think, and this has even been shown in some of the coverage of my book here, that which has been mostly very positive, but the sense somehow it's much easier to talk about people wanting to be into woke coke, you know, this so-called term, in case you don't know, which is basically a bullshit expression made up by the media, but this idea somehow that there are woke people in Britain or anywhere who care about, which is not a bad thing at all, uh, what they eat and what they consume, and they want to therefore be ethical in how they use drugs. I've got no problem with that, except for the fact that it doesn't exist. There's no way in 2020, as it stands, to get ethically sourced cocaine. It does not exist. There's no evidence that's possible to get it. It just doesn't exist. Um, there's nothing wrong with the ambition, and many people in this room, I suspect, support legalizing, regulating drugs, as I do very clearly. But right now, as it stands, anyone who says to you, ethically sourced cocaine is a thing, it's not a thing. It doesn't exist in a practical sense. There's no way to make that possible, knowing the current prohibition framework that exists in the world, including here. So I think too often the media and I speak as a journalist who's often deeply disillusioned with my own profession, don't ask questions beyond a stupid headline of woke coke, mm. and it really pisses me off. <laughs> we, we've got a few drug law reformers in the room. We've got Dan from Release. Um, I think you'd agree with me is that it's one of the big things at the moment is the Met is pushing out there is no ethical coke, so don't do it. That's kind of almost a deterrent now. But where does the policy and the governments fail and consumer responsibility step in? Where's the interplay on that? Well, in the UK, of course, there's a profound disconnect because, A, most of the – I mean, I remember last year I talked about this in the book. There are key people in the UK, the Met and others, who say on one level with to some degree of accuracy, yes, if you use cocaine, there are people who are harmed along the way. That's a statement of fact. That's true, but – and this is an unbelievably important caveat. But there's not the next obvious question. And so and so what? Therefore, are you saying don't use drugs? Just say no. If that's essentially the implicit message, then thanks very much. But you know, this didn't work for 30 years and will never it's never going to work. Or do we actually want to try to imagine a far more ethical way of both producing drugs, supplying drugs, regulating drugs? That has to be the ultimate outcome. And there are as I discuss in the book, an area I'm, I'm doing research on at the moment, is that there are growing numbers of people, both in the West, but equally importantly, if not more so, in places like Colombia and Peru, who are aware of the fact, this is from farmers and others, who are aware of the fact that there is going to be a massive global market for cocaine, for better or worse. And is it not possible, and I would argue it is, to make that ethically, actually ethically sourced, from the source, from the farmer. So every person along the supply chain is given a 
decent salary, a decent wage is given actually a protection in a, in a, you know, let's have a, how about like a, a cocaine worker union? That to me sounds kind of maybe crazy in a way, but there's no reason why that can't happen. And I mean, I'm sure people in this room know this, but just for maybe some who don't, last year, the Global Drug Survey, as people know, the biggest drug survey in the world had a question about, in short, would people pay more for ethical cocaine and how much would you pay more for it, basically? Majority said, yes, they'd pay more and up to 25% more for actually ethically sourced cocaine. And that's something that I 110% support rather than focusing on the nonsense that this whole sort of woke coke um, headline, which is sort of a media creation that doesn't exist, to actually imagine what an ethical cocaine market would look like. And there are people, Steve Rolls in the UK, amongst others, who are working on what this actually could look like. What would coca-produced products look like? How would a regulated system work? And I think one of the problems, I discussed this in the book a little bit, is how many US states are legalizing marijuana is arguably not the way to actually do this. And maybe we can get to that later. I won't go into it now. But I think the US's, some US states' approach has been a bit misguided. And I worry that if lessons are not learned from those mistakes, then it's possible to recreate them if there's serious talk about legalizing cocaine or other drugs. We're definitely going to get to that ethical point on, on the cannabis industry in the US because it's certainly an issue that we, we're addressing. But just to go back to Honduras for a moment, and you mentioned again that there was interference in the elections. Can you roughly explain how that worked? So the DEA, again, most people might know about this, but the DEA obviously is the, I guess, pro-drug war arm of the US government. It's been operating for decades. The Trump administration increased its budget. The DEA's role in many parts of the world, Honduras, West Africa and elsewhere, remains deeply, and I interview a lot of DEA people in the book, some who are still there, some who have left, some who defended 110%. Of course, I don't share that view, but I want to put that view in there. Um, they believe that they're not fighting a futile battle. Uh, they believe that, sure, they're not going to stop everybody using cocaine, but they can bring down some cartel heads and therefore that might solve the problem. I mean, obviously, as a lot of people here might know, the US has had a strategy for years of so-called the taking out the kingpin strategy, which is namely you go after the big guys, and they're mostly guys, you knock them down, as in you arrest them, you kill them, you take them out of circulation, and that somehow will contribute to a lessening of the drug trade. It's a completely failed policy. As a good example, El Chapo in Mexico has been taken out. He's in prison and will suspect remain there for the rest of his life. It's had not just zero impact on the drug war. In fact, it's had the opposite effect. A, there's been infighting about who will lead the Sinaloa cartel. B, him not being there has not changed the level of violence. In fact, it's actually gone up. Mexico last year in 2019 had the worst violence ever on record, close to 40,000 people dying. I mean, the, it's apocalyptic levels of violence. So the DEA's role in Honduras has either been... I talk about a, a very infamous incident in 2012, which I won't go into great detail, but essentially the DEA tried to go after a ship full, a boat full of cocaine. Things went horribly badly. A lot of locals were killed, murdered. There's been no accountability for that. I met some of the survivors um, and of that awful massacre, really. And... It's an incredibly strange, weird story, and I'd encourage people to read the book about that because it's a really very odd situation where the DEA was trying to almost force people to change their story to um, 
lessen their own culpability for it. And I spoke to, as I do in the book, the key person from a DEA who was the head of DEA in the country at the time. He defends the mission 110%, said it was a noble cause. They're doing wonderful work there. You know, God bless America. Well, okay, sure, uh, except for the fact, the minor detail that the use and abuse of cocaine and the amount of cocaine going through Honduras is high, very, very high. And I do often wonder what ultimately is the point of the DEA. I mean, I understand that it's like saying, what's the point of the Pentagon causing carnage around the world? What's the point of DEA? To, um, and as I say in the book, what the DEA has very cleverly done from its perspective post 9-11 is tied to the war on terror. So essentially now saying that our drug war is now is a terror war. All these cartels are now funding and supporting and enriching terrorists. They're getting their money from drugs. These wars are joined together. And the rhetoric is the same thing. We're fighting a war on drugs. We're fighting a war on terror. Neither have any success. Neither will ever succeed. But the budgets for the DEA and other institutions that fight the war on terror have never been higher <laughs> because they convince stupid politicians that this is a war that maybe can be won. I'm glad that in the US that there are growing numbers of politicians, including some on the Republican side, who realize that the drug war is unwinnable. There are many who do still support it, which maybe we'll get to later for sure. But it's encouraging to me that this election cycle in the US, you have not all, but many of the US presidential candidates on the Democratic side, not all, but many, talking about, if not radically changing the drug war, certainly winding down aspects of it, at least domestically, if not globally, which is better than... Not. <laughs> <laughs> you you made the point about the the DEA. They they were essentially caught out lying for for that raid, and I, I'm ashamed to you to look at my notes. So I kind of want to guard them because oh, my my please. handwriting is so terrible because where I'm scribbling them down. <laughs> but the the points that I've really wanted to pick up on, I've starred, and that is one of them. The DEA. And the other one is um we we do need to talk about the fact that you call flip flops thongs. Can you? No, they're not thongs. They're, no, they're well, this is, yeah, well, I, I guess I didn't even know I did that actually in the book, weirdly, after, unless you put it on Twitter last week. But uh, look, yes, I do. Uh, we do call it that down under. I think where I, I'm un from. unforgivable on that one. <laughs> I think, yeah, thongs can mean many things, put it that way. It's like in flip flops. <laughs> yeah, like. very true. Foot thongs. But you, you, did, you witnessed a raid while you were there, yeah. didn't you? What was that like? Well, it was weird. We, I was with my uh, fixer and we were in this quite remote part of Honduras. This is in 2016. And this is an area where a lot of the cartels are very active. And we were just driving along, again, being stopped regularly by police who always ask for your ID, often are quite intimidating. A few times they took me out of the car and like kind of quite aggressively patted me down. Um, which was, I didn't at that stage think I was, you know, going to be shot dead, but yeah, you realize in those situations, you really have no power. You have no, your illusion of Western journalist protection, although I suspected it'd be much worse if I was a Honduran journalist, to be sure, is kind of a bit of an illusion that you sort of tell yourself, I'll be fine because I'm a Westerner and I'll be okay. And anyway, that's not always entirely correct, especially in certain parts of the world. But we suddenly drove into this area. There were all these, I can't remember how many, but dozens of four-wheel drives suddenly appeared out of nowhere. You know, there was all this um, dust that was coming from all the uh, cars, all these guys, dozens of guys with high-powered machine guns ran out. They were raiding a house. 
apparently to get a staff of a local drug cartel leader. All very dramatic, often funded by the US, these forces. And it emerged soon after, after speaking to some locals and others about it, that this is all done for show. That not that, that not that there was no media there to record it, so it wasn't done literally, you know, to be filmed to you know go on, you know, CNN or something. But it was show that the Honduran government can say, "Here's the times we raided these places. You know, we're really working to fight the drug war." When in reality, the head of the cartel lived in this amazing palatial mansion that I went past an hour later, never gets touched, never gets raided. Some of the lower la- lower level staff members may well be taken in and tortured, for sure, by the Honduran authorities. Uh, but this is all kind of a sham. So, again, you sort of ask yourself, well, the US had, has massively funded Honduras and given huge amounts of money to fight a supposed drug war. What exactly are they fighting there? They're, what they're ultimately doing is, and I discuss this in my book in, in depth, it has nothing to do with drugs. It's really about securing fertile land for industrialists who want to grow things like biofuels and other kind of uh, very valuable um, industries. That's what this is about kicking off indigenous people from their lands who often are the ones who are at least nominally trying to fight, not in a, in a violent sense, but fight drug cartels and corrupt police. And you sort of realise that nexus between the um, rich Hondurans, the Honduran government, often foreign multinationals who are operating in these areas, often given protection by US-backed and US-funded and US-trained forces. And WikiLeaks, as I show in the book extensively, is is and remains unbelievably valuable documents about how, A, the world works and how the US operates around the world. I mean, there really has been nothing, and I've been a journalist for 15 years now, there's no other amount of documents from any one organisation that's been more informative than WikiLeaks documents about how the US operates, and I use it in this book and in my last book in different ways. And Honduras has lots of documents that show how the richest man in Honduras then over the years, the US is saying... We know this guy is allowing planes filled with coke to land on his farms. We know it. What do they do about it? Nothing. Because they don't care. I mean, there's no interest in trying to stop it. And they know that cocaine's mostly ending up in the US. You, I could spend the whole conversation talking about Honduras because this is the thing with the book. Each chapter, it's, it might as well be a book in its own right. It's just that incredible. Uh, and I won't go into it now because you, you'll have to read it in the book. Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs. That's the name of the book, just to get it out there. But that you do an interview with Clara Woods, which you say is probably the hardest one that you've ever conducted. So for that reason, definitely read the book. But I'm going to transition now, seamlessly, into Guinea-Bissau. Yeah. Which, again, is another fairly similar situation to Honduras, which impoverished state. It's, it's again, a, po- a small population. But it's the drug aspect is so intertwined within the fabric of their society again can you give me a li- and you were one of the first journalists to go there and actually see it from a from a, a grassroots perspective so guinea bissau for those who don't know is a tiny country in west africa that virtually no one's heard of it is has a tiny population it used to be a portuguese colony until the mid 70s and today like a lot of west african countries nearby ivory coast guinea conakry and others It's become a key transit point for cocaine from South America to Europe. 
including the UK. And although it hasn't got the levels of violence you see in Honduras, it wasn't as scary to be there as, as Honduras. The levels of violence against locals or others is not as endemic. It is impoverished because you've had successive military leaders and governments. It is what the UN calls the narco state. I discuss in the book where that's a legitimate term. I think often those terms are used to delegitimize poor countries and there's too little effort, I think, outside to try to rectify those problems. But putting that issue aside, it's a you go there and it could be a very poor tropical paradise. There's beautiful beaches, not much infrastructure. Uh, people are very friendly. The main export is uh, are cashews, so that gives you a sense of how poor it is. There's no real natural resources there of any sort. They're not growing the coca plant there. It's really about being a transit country for cocaine principally. And there's a lot of interesting examples, and I cite one in the book about a famous former head of the Navy who was arrested by the DEA. He's taken to the US. He's given a sort of quasi-sham trial, said to be one of the worst drug kingpins in West Africa. It was all bullshit. Not that I'm saying he wasn't maybe guilty of something. He may well have been. But this idea somehow that, again, you take out some high-level supposed kingpin and that's going to massively reduce the uh, amount of cocaine going through the country. A, it doesn't. And B, if it doesn't go through Guinea-Bissau for a while, it goes to the country next door. I mean, just last year, the biggest amount of cocaine was ever seized in Guinea-Bissau. It was, I think, after the book, I think, went to print. And on the face of it, you might say, well, that's a sign that things are getting better, that they're actually finding the cocaine. Well, yes, maybe. But what that actually practically means is that most of it's not being found, like in Honduras. I mean, it's a drop in the ocean what the authorities actually are detecting. So I was interested in going there. Other journalists had been there before me, but I'd been to certain parts of that country on the border between Guinea-Bissau and Guinea-Conakry, which is sort of a, there's no literal border. It's like a kind of beach and some palm trees and sort of cows sleeping on the beach. It's all very kind of weird. And it's hard to imagine that so much of the cocaine that when I say you in the UK and elsewhere are using is often going through this particular place, either by ship or by or by plane. And there's no law enforcement there to find it, to inspect it, to detect it. And... Some locals are involved in that. And as I say in the book, I have complete sympathy for someone who might be involved in that. These are unbelievably poor people who are given nothing by the government, no resources, no infrastructure, no health. If someone comes along and says, I'm going to offer you, you know, a small amount of money, more than you would get normally, to uh, collect, say, bricks of cocaine from the beach, you're going to do it. Um, and the, to me, there's it makes perfect sense why you would. The issue is not people like that. It's, let me just say that. Obviously, the problem is not people like that at all. So, yeah, it was fascinating to go there. I was there in 2015. The situation has kind of ebbed and flowed since then in terms of the political situation. There was an election recently. As is often the case, the results were contested. Um, but yeah, it was a fascinating place to go and interesting, again, I wanted to go to a place that virtually no one's ever been to, but secondly, how so much of the cocaine coming into Europe goes through there. And it's, it's the perverse nature again of law enforcement and the DEA's intervention is that one of the reasons that these new transit routes are formed in Africa is because there was an unarguable element of success in quotation marks in the Caribbean. So that's where it then 
went on to being West Africans uh, burden. Yes. Which is the displacement effect, which is something we don't necessarily talk about, is it? And there's also the sense that you are playing whack-a-mole. Yeah. It's always whack-a-mole. This idea somehow that if you cut off one route, another route will appear, which is always the case. I mean, it's the classic argument now you hear from Trump saying, you know, we're going to build a wall and stop all drugs coming into the USA. Newsflash, most drugs aren't coming in that way. They're coming in often by plane, especially heroin. Some do go via the border, to be sure, but much of it doesn't. And again, it's sort of a sense that our the, the the conversation and debate in much of the West is so infantile and at such a basic level, even still in, in the, you know, third decade of the 21st century, that we're still talking about trying to cut off drug supply lines and we're still trying to sort of go after drug cartels. I'm not for a second defending brutal drug cartels. They are thugs and they need to be held to account. I've got no problem with that. What I have got a problem with is the way in which we still, and it's changing, but not nearly fast enough, talking about how you actually could change this process. You can take out vast elements of the criminal networks by legalising, regulating drugs. That's not a panacea. I'm not someone who believes if you legalise every drug tomorrow or in in five years' time that all these problems disappear. They don't. But you massively, massively reduce the influx of criminal networks to make the money. That's where so much of the violence comes from. It's competing for territory, competing for trade routes. And we see that in Mexico and Honduras and elsewhere. And you do make mention just then that the little guy in Honduras, uh, in uh, Guinea-Bissau, they don't necessarily know what they're getting into. They're, they're being asked, you know, pick up this package. And you make the point that the naivety is to such a degree that sometimes cocaine is used as condiments on food or in uh, uh, death ceremonies to put on bodies or even, what was it, fertiliser. Yeah. That's how naive the region is. Yeah, I mean, is. at some point, again, that was, yes, there were there was examples years ago when sometimes these bricks of cocaine started bobbing up off the coast. People oh, what's this? And started either you know, putting it on food or obviously had quite a strong effect if you're putting cocaine, probably very good cocaine, on your food. Now, that's not, I'm not saying, I mean, that naivety probably didn't last that long. People suddenly either realised that it wasn't, you know, fertiliser and wasn't that tasty necessarily for your food. <laughs> and the food there is pretty basic. You know, it's very, very simple village, no electricity, no access to fresh water, etc. It's a very tough life. Um, but yes, initially at least there was a lot of people who were... Um, totally un- unsure about how this trade actually was was abusing and exploiting their own country. I think you, you're making the, the point that it's estimated that around about a 1,000 kilograms of coke per night were flown into Guinea-Bissau. Is that right? Or at some, I, yes, about yeah. 10 years ago, 13 years ago, the estimation by the UN was at least that amount per Which, night. Now, that's probably gone down since then, but huge. I mean, that is... A lot of cocaine. And it's not all coming to London, but a lot of it's going to Europe. And there's often a trade route that goes to West Africa, often goes overland that by various groups, including some uh, militant groups, up through Africa to the north of Africa and then comes goes into Europe, usually by sea, but sometimes also by plane, and then gets distributed by various gangs across Europe and, of course, often ends up in the UK as well. And as the demand for cocaine has soared, particularly here, and I'm sure people listening to this will know this, but use of cocaine in um, England is the highest ever. 
last year, I mean, just the police alone said they confiscated the most amount of Class A drugs I've ever found since records began in 73, which presumes that the vast majority they're not finding. And it's a mature government, which is not what the, what Britain has now, sadly, would <laughs> not just change policy, but recognise that the failure of the current policy. And uh, as I say in the book, this is not um, coming from a position that says, had Labor won, which they obviously didn't, this would have been radically different. There were certainly moves within Labor to try to change policy. And as I say in the book, in the last 20 years, Labor policy often was pretty bad. Very bad, actually. And I think a lot of people either forget that or ignore that. Some people in this room, maybe on the podcast, do know that. But in general, I think there was a sense that, well, if Corbyn would have won, this would have been a new heyday around drugs. Maybe. But there are a lot of people in Labor, some of whom are still in the party, who took a pretty draconian line. Even the last election, not before this one, I'm saying a few years ago, often Labor policy around drugs was pretty ugly, actually. And there's there was a shift about some Labor politicians talked about legalising, they're talking about a Royal Commission, which I'm not entirely convinced is just sort of kicking the can down the road. We kind of know to some extent how the UK could at least evolve towards a much more enlightened drug policy. I do think it's very likely that the UK will legalise and regulate um, cannabis, uh, not next week, but whether it happens as well while Boris Johnson's Prime Minister, I don't know, of course, but there's certainly people around him who do support that. Yes, for a much more cutthroat capitalist mindset. We'll get to that in a yeah. minute because that is definitely, like I said, the the social equity themes of cannabis regulation is something I definitely want to yeah. speak to you about. Yeah. Uh, but again, going back to Guinea-Bissau, yeah. um, it's, it's, you make a really good point that strangely hadn't occurred to me is that if you were in the drug trade, you know, you were a drug lord from Colombia or Mexico or wherever, why wouldn't you pick a country that's fragile and hasn't got infrastructure and is lacking uh, democracy and, inv- and and also things like basic things like prison, uh, police services. Things like- so, the fragility of a country does make a difference and that's why drugs do end up getting pushed and funneled there. That's a big part of it. And what was interesting there is the country that's on the coast and the country is so poor that they barely have any boats. When I went there, I went to the country's first um, drug testing lab in Bissau, which is the capital. And it was funded by the EU and it was basic, but yes, if they got some substance, they could test it, whether it's cocaine or something else. But that's a drop in the air. There's one lab in the entire country and you find a lot of people who are coming into the country bringing drugs either flying into the airport or they're transporting it over, over land um, and other sort of ways. And often the military and government are involved. But you're right, a vulnerable state, and that's often made vulnerable, of course, by a lack of international support, by a lack of um, viable um, industry, by the fact that uh, the country is incredibly politically unstable. And one of the things I discussed in the book is that I think it's too easy, though, for us in the West to say, well, to, you know, almost to blame a country like Guinea-Bissau, like how dare you become a narco-state? How dare you cause problems for us because the cocaine that we in the West are consuming and abusing at times is coming through? You know, Why aren't you able to stop that problem, you being Guinea-Bissau or you being Honduras? And I'm not saying that there's no responsibility whatsoever for countries to do that. There is. But the broader picture is not about saying 
why aren't you fixing the problem there? Why is it happening in the first place? Because the demand for the drug is there. I mean, that's the, that to me is the ultimate demand in the West I'm talking about. The US, the UK, Europe, my country, Australia. A smaller level, but still demand there as well. And and I guess it frustrates me. I think it's sort of a neo-colonial mindset that says, it's your problem, you should fix it. And the amount of support that we in the West give to these kinds of countries to do that is very, very short term. There's not really a serious interest in trying to develop countries in a way where these problems won't keep on occurring. So let's not be too shocked by the fact that there's always going to be a willing country. If it's not Guinea-Bissau, it's Ivory Coast. If it's not Ivory Coast, it's somewhere next door. If it's not Honduras, it'll be somewhere next door. In other words, let's not be let's not fool ourselves that the problem is somehow the people in that country or the leadership in that country when we know because we fund a despotic regime there in the first place. Like that's that's what we with our money in the West is funding. So let's not be shocked about that. I think one of the, the complicated issues that we have touched upon is that there is linked to international terrorism. Certainly you can, you can say that it's funding a lot. But also there's an overinflation because of what the DEA have done through their rhetoric of like you said, post 9-11, they've specifically dovetailed it to the drug trade to stay relevant. How do we tease apart that link and where is the evidence? How much is funding international terrorism? This is an interesting question. Um, the, 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 the short answer to that is there is unbelievably little hard evidence that much of it is funding terrorism, it being the drug trade. I'm not suggesting that it doesn't. In Afghanistan, for example, there's undoubtedly evidence that the Taliban is involved in the drug trade, making money from a drug trade, which obviously is the why, amongst many reasons, the Taliban has been so successful in its own way against the US for roughly 20 years now. And the country is now the biggest producer of opium and heroin in the world. Um, Myanmar is second. But so, yes, is the Taliban gaining or benefiting from that? Yes. And let me preface my next comment by saying I'm not defending the Taliban here at all, but the Taliban is, at least these days, focused purely on a domestic goal, which is kicking out the US, often committing horrible crimes in the process, which I do not defend for a second. But the, the argument often made is, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah and others um, are getting funding from a drug trade. There's not a lot of hard evidence for that. A lot of experts, in the media you regularly hear this, a lot of sort of national security writers who regularly talk about this sort of thing, there's an intimate connection. The evidence, the hard evidence, is not that much there, frankly. And I'm not diminishing the fact that it doesn't exist. I'm just saying that the evidence is not that much there. So what I would say in response to your question is, let's be sceptical of those claims. Let's not suggest that they don't happen at all. But the idea somehow that the drug trade is is fueling Al-Qaeda or ISIS or um, Hezbollah or other um, groups is questionable. And I just did a big piece for Vice about this because often the argument in Guinea-Bissau was that these two big drug raids last year, the biggest in their history, the largest drug raids of cocaine ever, were, drink- were funded and supported by terrorist groups. Now, that story appeared in the media without any evidence and there is no evidence doesn't mean it's not there this means there is no hard evidence that generally exists so it's been very frustrating writing this book in a way and seeing how 
um, superficial journalists and commentators who don't know what the hell they're talking about because they're being fed this stuff by uh, the DEA and others that, well, we're in this fight to stop terrorism and we therefore have to go after drug, the drug trade to do so. Be sceptical of that. I mean, be sceptical of everything, but be sceptical of that. <laughs> Definitely be sceptical of what you read. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, so what we're going to do is kind of merge all the western countries because you specifically in the book uh, chapter the united states great britain and australia and and each one of them has got a, a big nuance within them hasn't, haven't they so for example you come from australia and you visited the first um safe consumption room uh, or safe injection facility drug consumption room in Sydney. Um, so what was that like? How was it actually seeing that in operation? Yeah, so for those who don't know, Sydney had, it, it was the first safe injecting centre in the Southern Hemisphere. It opened about 20 years ago of sorts. The second one opened recently in Melbourne, which is the second biggest city in the country. So there's now two in the Southern Hemisphere, both in Australia. Drug policy in Australia in general is fairly backward. It's not that dissimilar to here, actually, in a way, to most drugs. I mean, drugs remain illegal. um, And there's, uh, in some ways, in fact, it's more backward. I mean, there's still fights about should there be pill testing at music events. I mean, it's quite draconian. But there have been times in the last 20 years where those sort of things did happen after huge opposition, so safe injecting facility. I went in there, took a lot of time to get permission, not just so much to go in, to get in there, but to actually um, uh, interview people who use the facility regularly. The facility had never allowed a journalist to do that because for good reason, they didn't trust the media mostly because the media often gives them a bad rap. And as a journalist, I understood that. So it took a lot of time to convince them that I wasn't that kind of journalist. 
I was a good one. I was a kosher guy. To the point where there's there's a, I'm sure we all know that in this country we've got some contentious voices, some some economists that put out some pretty hideous things. There's one on Australia, isn't there, that pretty much advocated for sterilisation of all people that are you know under this service. There was a there's a woman called Miranda Devine who is a famous, infamous News Limited Murdoch. I wouldn't call her a journalist, but a writer. <laughs> And she did, has called a few years ago for people who use ice to be sterilised. Interesting policy idea. Uh, hasn't been taken up, thankfully, by anyone. So there's some charming people in this debate. But the facility itself, just briefly, was um, friendly. It was approachable. It was, I, mean, I guess I had this image, totally my ignorance, that it was going to be kind of separate rooms. Like it's all open space, open plan brightly lit um people are being watched the whole time when they're consuming obviously the drugs just it's obvious but just to say this the drugs are not being provided by someone you have to bring your own drugs the police are not generally going to prosecute someone who steps in with say heroin um no one has ever died in this facility ever there have been people who have overdosed and they've been helped and saved and again it's important to say this, that in every safe injecting facility in the world, uh, no one has ever died in this facility, ever, anywhere. And the rate of abuse and problems around this facility in Sydney decreased um, in the last 20 years. It's now, I don't want to say it's there permanently, but a lot of the political debates are pretty much over. I don't want to speak too soon, but it seems like it's going to be there for the foreseeable future. And I would argue it should be massively expanded. Um, I know there's a huge problem in the UK here about these issues that it doesn't this doesn't exist. It definitely needs to. It should. It's a no-brainer. I don't want to be optimistic that that might happen with Boris Johnson as prime minister. I think there's some signs that maybe it might happen. Maybe in Scotland. I know there's been opposition to that by some Tories. I'm well aware of that. But I know there's a drug summit happening in February, and that's going to be on the agenda again. Like a lot of leaders around the world, Boris Johnson's not going to lead on anything to do with drugs. He may be sort of forced into it, so to speak. And there are some people, including those I feature in the book, um, in the Tory party, who are actually pretty progressive on drugs. Um, they're a small minority voice, to be sure. I don't agree with him on a lot of other reasons, like Crispin Blunt, for example. Yep, yep. Um, I'm sure a friend or at least someone friend who knows this podcast, this issue yeah. quite well. Um, actually, in some ways, a very conservative guy, actually, but is I interviewed him for the book. I followed his work over this. I think he's he's a sensible voice that in that party is very needed. Now whether his voice is gonna come out and win in the end, I don't know. I think his voice is a minority. Um, but uh, he's certainly a very loud voice in that party and certainly a, a you know a regular voice to advocate for well he he thinks all drugs should be legalized and regulated. Um, which won't happen with Boris Johnson clearly as Prime Minister. But um, yeah, so the facility in Sydney was actually in the end a really inspiring place and should be rep- you know, replicated in a lot of places. And this is where it's interesting. Even though we have got a lot of differences in Western drug policy, there's still a lot of similarities, isn't there? Like You make the point coming from the journalism background that a lot of it does get filtered through the press and how it's delivered. How do you think that's being handled in all of those regions that we mentioned, the United States, Britain and Australia? Look, I think in general, reporting on drugs in the last decades has been utterly woeful. There obviously are exceptions. There's good reporters, there's good stories. You could probably name 20 of them, to be sure. 
But in general, I think a lot of the reporting, including in Britain and the US and Australia, has been woeful. It's been demonizing drug users, drug uh, people who abuse drugs, people who die from drugs, family members who uh, have been affected by drugs. There's been a an empathy bypass in a lot of drug coverage. And the hypocrisy is so stunning because so many people either use drugs themselves, know people who use drugs themselves. And I feel that it's sort of changing a little bit, I think, here and there. But in general, I feel that, and I try to talk about this in the book a lot, as I said earlier on, I'm not a big fan of my profession at all on a range of issues. I think a lot of journalists, I'm not saying they're evil people, some are, but a lot of journalists I think are, are happy to be superficial about coverage because they haven't got the interest or time or inclination to actually dig deeper. And when it comes to drugs, especially if you work for certain outlets, and this is not, by the way, unique to um, just the so-called right-wing press. And let's be clear, as I say in the book, I mean, The Guardian, which is a supposed liberal newspaper, has not been, editorially speaking, has not been very good about the drug war. In fact, they've often editorialized just recently again that there needs to be some, and I'm paraphrasing, some quasi-continuation of a drug war. I'm not even sure what that means apart from the status quo continuing. So I'm not just talking about the Daily Mail. I'm not just talking about the so-called, the press you imagine would be terrible. There's still a a sense somehow that there must be a fight of sorts, some kind of battle, a war against drug use or abuse. And I'm not against by any means trying to get people, um, if it's unhealthy, off drugs or help them through through um, therapy or some kind of greater assistance. But let's not ignore the fact in the UK in the last 10 years, and I feature this in the book, particularly around Newcastle, the amount of money that Tories have cut, slashed from drug support services has been devastating. And the effect of that has been around Newcastle and other places. There literally are generations that are being lost, not just to heroin, but partly heroin. And it's really, it was, I don't know, I wouldn't say I was shocked. Well, I was shocked, actually. I was. I was really moved and shocked by, I was there a few years ago researching the book. And the amount of suffering you see in a, not that, I mean, I'm aware that there's suffering in first world countries, of course I am, but the suffering in a country that is so wealthy, talking about Britain, around this issue, which is totally avoidable, is really shocking. And that does not get enough press. You know, there's a reason why people are using drugs in the first place, some good, some bad, I get that. But the lack of support services is really unforgivable. And I hope, I mean, certainly the Labor Party talks about increasing and of course they lost the election. Um, I really hope that there's um, continued pressure on the Conservatives to to give more money that they really took away years ago. Um, it doesn't solve the problem entirely, but it's a big part of it, along with obviously legalising and regulating, but that's not going to happen next week. So you need to provide support for people who are really struggling on drugs, which is a problem. But it's it's true what you said that it's it's certainly a, it run it runs the flag up the pole the fact that the US Australia and the UK are so wealthy and yet in America we've got the opioid crisis and the fact that 
so many people are dying now. It's a, look, you know, I say this in the book all the time. This is this is about class. It's all about class. That there is a an unspoken reality from a lot of people in power and in the media who don't care that generally people who are poor are suffering the most. Obviously, there are people who are wealthy who suffer from drug problems too. Of course, there are. But they're not the ones generally being arrested or harassed or interrogated. They're not generally the ones being killed in the Philippines, for example, where Duterte has murdered probably 30,000 people in three and a half years. It's the poor who are white or black. This is, not, this is across, um, and g- across gender and um, colour lines. I mean, the opioid epidemic in America is obviously is actually principally poor whites and others, but it's lots to do with the white community. And the way that the language, the way that the media reports on that, is very different to how they reported, as I say in the book extensively, how they report on often whites having problems with drugs than blacks. This is often about class and race, and. I discussed that in the book because I think too often it's ignored that the that the contempt that's felt and shown by politicians and often the media towards people who are struggling on drugs or even using drugs should be called out. And as a journalist, it really shames me that a lot of journalists still continue that, and I see it all the time, here and elsewhere. It's, it's certainly you, you. There are so many stats, and again, you, you only got to look at my notes, which are so vast that there are so many stats that point towards the fact this is a class issue in a way that we view certain other groups and and the disparities that go with that is just horrific this is the point that i do want to wrap up on so don't forget anthony's going to be here to sign the book because he's going to sign mine for me so make sure you get him because he's not in the country that much as i found out so get it signed um and also i mean this is this is a hideous point to make but Anthony's probably pissed off a lot of drug lords in this book, so this the price of this might go up if if, if it all kind of if works. If I die, thank exactly. you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, just kind of get that out of there. <laughs> but <laughs> just to make that point lovely. Um, but you're right. This is this is the point I want to finish on. Is that we got release in the room who who are second to none on the race disparity of the drug war and what going on on stop and searches and, and prosecutions. And the fact that we just mentioned the fact that the cannabis industry is building and building in the United States, the people that have been harmed in the drug war, famously people of, of black and Latino backgrounds. We, we, we've spoken about uh, Massachusetts and their social equity model. And you just said that California are trying to do something similar. How important and, and what can we do to project that conversation of social equity, making sure that people that have earned the right for a cannabis industry place that if they want it, not everyone will, how can we make sure that they stake, stake their claim and get in there and, and we sort this out in a social equity way? One of the things, and I discussed this in the book, although not in depth, is that advocating the legalization of cannabis, which I do 110%, needs to be alongside the idea that, to me, there needs to be a warning label on a drug. In other words, not to say that people, I mean, it's through higher education there needs to be you know, more knowledge about what um, the drug can cause. The reason I say that is to me a concern I have about how some states and some advocates are pushing a legalization of cannabis that I said 110, 110% support is. I don't often see any discussion about excessive use of a drug is a problem. Excessive use of any drug is a problem. And I say that because the danger is if we don't, I think, address that issue, putting aside, which I'll get to in a second, your question, if we don't address that point, 
then it affects the possibility of how you deal with other drugs that should be legalized as well. So I have a problem with the fact that in the US you can advertise. I think this is a huge mistake. Now, it's a massive capitalist society. I'm not surprised it's happening, but I think it, it shouldn't happen. And in fact, to me, in a, in a legalized and regulated model of all drugs, no advertising should be allowed. Full stop. Um, warning labels potentially should be on however you get the drug in a packet, in a, in a whatever it looks like. Um, that to me is important, really important. Um, obviously, in a regulated system, you'd know what's in the drug in the first place. So to some extent, there's less of a risk of, say, overdosing on drug X or Y. I understand that. But I do think there needs to be acknowledgement that there are some risks with taking, you know, with excessively taking drugs. There are. Um, I think the real problem is in the US still, and as you say, there are definitely good examples of states and governments that are trying to address this, is that there's no there's not enough acknowledgement of both expunging past convictions, which some states are doing for sure, um, at a federal level, and Sanders has talked about an executive order to do this pretty much from one day. So he says he can federally legalize cannabis through an executive order. I don't know if that's entirely true, but he says that it is. That you actually have to put these positions in place. You actually have to fund the idea that it actually becomes part of an education system, that a cannabis industry is, if you want it, part of a legitimate business. I mean, the US, as people may be aware, at the moment, people often can't bank their money. I mean, there is still a weird situation where because it's still illegal federally, um, and I think also it's, although I am aware, as a gentleman said before, in the, U, in the UK, there are encouraging signs of certain, and I talk about this in the book, as you know, police forces being far more open-minded about either turning a blind eye to these issues or simply decriminalising it de facto, often all drugs, including cannabis. But in the, UK, in the US, in 2018, FBI figures showed, in fact, drug arrests for cannabis in some places going up, not down. In some states, it's going up, which is insane in a country that appears to be moving inevitably, whether it's Bernie Sanders or someone else, to legalising cannabis at a federal level. It'll happen at some point. I don't know when or how, but it will. And in the UK, I think the way you address that is to, A, learn from some of the mistakes that have been made in the US. As I said, whether it's viable to have a system here where it's not there's no advertising at all, I suspect people around, say, a Boris Johnson government, the one of who are enthusiastic about this, are all about making money. And this is a massive multi-billion dollar industry and they might not like the idea that you can't advertise the drug. Um, I think there needs to be a much greater involvement of people who have been most affected by the war in this debate. And too often they're not involved in the debate, including in the US. Um, Their voices are heard sometimes on the campaign trail in the US, particularly Sanders has brought them onto the campaign trail. But often they're ignored by the media. I give them, I speak to some of them in, in the book and I raise those issues. I think they're really important. But I do worry that there is not, because the US is doing this in a really kind of state by state way, it was not led federally, which I think Obama frankly could have done had he chosen to. He chose not to. It wasn't a priority for him at all. And I think I fault him a lot for that. That I think the lessons to some extent, have not been learnt about how you could do this a lot better. And the UK, I think, has an opportunity if they're going to move towards that, which I think they will. I think Australia will inevitably legalise cannabis as well. Um, and I think the Canadian model has something to be 
viewed positively. There are some problems there as well at the moment, I know. But, yeah, I don't know. I really, after writing this book, I was... I think that advocates such as probably people in this room and on this podcast and myself who think that there should be a radical change in how we address drugs need to also be alive to the fact that too often the issues of class and racial issues are not addressed enough when we're talking about what legalizing all drugs would look like because there are certain communities that are more affected than others. And that's just not, I mean, cannabis legalization is a great first step, but let's not be under any illusion. So many of the problems caused by the drug war is not about cannabis. Obviously, a lot of people who I'm talking about who were arrested in the US in 2018, they're about, I think, don't quote me on this exact figure, but over 600,000 people were arrested for cannabis alone offences in the US in 2018 at a time where growing numbers of states have legalised cannabis. And who is being mostly affected? People of colour and poor whites. Now, those police departments aren't getting the memo from whoever that that's not a way to go. Um, They're not getting directives from anyone to change that. In fact, they haven't accepted the fact that cannabis should be legalised in the first place. And that has to come from leadership. And I am encouraged by some police heads in the UK who are saying that. I actually am. It's actually quite rare. You do see that in parts of Australia, but not as much. You do see it more here. And you do see it in parts of the US, for sure, including states that have legalised cannabis. But I do think that there needs to be far more engagement in, I use the term reparations, but I said it before, of actually massively reinvesting in those communities, which I don't think is happening nearly enough. So I'm going to, this is the very final point and make sure we get the book signed. You, I'll give a short answer. <laughs> yeah, there's so much I wanted to cover, but we've just not got the time because it's just such a magnificent book. Peels, Powder and Smoke Inside the Bloody War on Drugs. You, we not talked about the Philippines because there's a big chapter on that. And at the end, we got conclusions and um, solutions. So you quote Obama, uh, history doesn't always go straight forward. It can sometimes zigzag. Where do you think we're going? What do you think is going to be happening in five years' time? I think more countries will legalise marijuana. I think it's obviously with the US, it's hard to know that whether, whether that'll be legalised federally. It obviously depends who wins this year. I think if Trump wins re-election, I think that's... Although there are people around him who do advocate legalising cannabis, I might add, but it's hard to see him legalising cannabis federally, frankly. <laughs> uh, someone like Sanders or Warren say they will. Someone like Joe Biden says he probably won't. So it's a mixed mixed bag there on the, on the Democratic side. I do think also almost the what is also likely to happen is happening, in fact, in many places, particularly the US is, the growing acceptance and legalization of the use of psychedelics to deal with mental health issues, therapy, PTSD, etc. So LSD, magic mushrooms, um, ecstasy. There is a path towards a quasi-legalization happening in the US now. Some people might be aware of this to deal with these, to use these drugs for, I mean, again, I think people should be able to use them for recreational purposes as well. But putting that issue aside for legitimate mental health reasons. And the evidence is increasingly overwhelming that these drugs, not all people, but they can help people. So I almost sort of see that those that path, and also one thing on that point which I discussed in the book is, that needs to be also widely, uh, widely um, accessible. It can't just be for 
rich folk who go to their therapist and say, I want to go to an ecstasy therapy session for three weeks. Can you help me? And you can afford it. I've got no people with like that using it. That's fine. But let's push for the idea that these things should be widely available with, as I said, with checks and balances on the NHS, on Medicare, as we call it in Australia. Um, and medic and the idea in the US of say Medicare for all, whatever you want to call it, that certain candidates are pushing, this should be a part of it. I'm not saying everything revolves around using ecstasy. Of course it doesn't, but that should be a key part of it. And I do think that's almost a, a, a likely way of where this, where that debate will go, that those kinds of drugs will either be legalized in a very regulated sense. I think that, well, the US is moving in that direction, in fact, and that has not slowed down during the Trump era. The FDA is moving towards some kind of, as I'm sure some people will be aware, moving towards a system where these drugs could be much more easily accessible for those who need it in a controlled therapist environment. What I'd love to see is a country, don't ask me which one, legalizes cocaine. And there are people in Colombia and elsewhere, and in fact this year, in March, next uh, soon, the first time in Colombian history a politician is going to put in the parliament a um, uh, idea to regulate cocaine. It'll fail, almost certainly. But a politician who understands the reality of the country, as this individual does, I don't know him personally, but I know what he's doing, recognises that the current system is a complete failure, that you need to regulate cocaine. So I don't think it's going to happen, but I think putting that sort of thing on the agenda is really important. So I'm actually, the reason I added that chapter at the end, because most of, often people read my books and say that was really good, but very depressing. So I want to give people not false hope, but I do think actually there has been, despite all the carnage, which is still awful, there is actually a shift going on. There's no doubt about that in the last five or so years, 10 years in many countries around the world about how states view drugs and how societies view drugs. And I'm, I wouldn't say optimistic would be too strong a word, but I have a degree of optimism about public pressure and science, actually, particularly psychedelics, is convincing enough people that actually the science shows that these drugs can actually have unbelievably beneficial properties. And if that's the way that certain kinds of drugs become more acceptable, so be it. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think that's the sole way we need to deal with this, but I think it's a key part of it. So, no, I feel, um, yeah, moderately at times optimistic when I'm, yeah, that's, it sounds like a lot of caveats there, but no, I, I am in a way. I mean, I think the evidence shows that. It's not me just saying it. The evidence does show that. Um, and I think psychedelics is almost a way to, almost like a gateway drug, so to speak, to this debate that we're seeing. I mean, there is in the West, and I'll finish on this point, there is in the West a profound mental health crisis. There's no way to get around that reality. Antidepressants help some people, yes, but many they don't. And if these kinds of drugs can help a lot of people, then you hugely change the way in which we view not just drugs, but also mental health. And the hope is that if it's given enough support to people who need it, not just those who can afford it, then you change how, I don't mean this in a, in a, in a, in a um, naive way, but you change how people view themselves and their society, which is positive. 
That's a brilliant point to end on. So if we can have a round of applause for Anthony Lowenstein. Thank you so much for listening. And there genuinely is so much to unpack in that episode. We barely scratched the surface of Anthony's book, which is beside me as we speak. And just to remind you, it's Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs by Anthony Lowenstein, brought to you by Scribe. And thank you, Scribe, for everything you did on that event as well. And one and one thank yous. We need to thank all of the Stop and Search team, which is John, Tristan and Nikki. They do so much. Honestly, unsung heroes. Thank you to John Harris at the Distraction Peace Network for all you do for being brilliant and lovely. Thank you to Distraction Peace Network and Scoobius Pip. Thank you so much for having us. And make sure you listen to Say Why to Drugs by Susie Gage, who has got a book out, so get that as well. And there's more news to come on that as well, so stay tuned. And thank you to My Name is Ad for all the artwork you do. And on, on this episode as well, we need to thank the Queen Mary University and Jennifer Randall for everything that putting on a great event for us. And if you want to follow us on social media, at UK Leap on Twitter and Instagram, ukleap.org on Facebook and our website. And if you want to give me any feedback, suggest guests, anything like that, then you can find me on Twitter at Jason Tron. And I think that's it. So on that note, I'm off to queue up the next episode because I've just got to do some editing and then we're all ready to go on that as well. So make sure you subscribe and all those kind of things as well. So this is Stop and Search signing off. Bye. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where true love seldom stray. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.